0: For those of you who don't know this, I have a morbid fear of electricity. Um, anybody else not like electricity? I, I like, listen, I like electricity. I just don't like to mess with electricity. I, we have a um, kind of an interesting setup at home. I, I can't think of what it is. If Craig was here, uh, he'd, he'd be able to tell me what it is. We've got some kind of ivy that grows up the side of our house, and if I don't trim it like every three weeks... It's in my attic, and it's going through my roof. It's all over the place. So <clears throat> we have this um, trellis kind of right off of our garage, and it's sturdy. Craig put it together. It's like six by sixes. I mean, World War Three could happen, and this trellis thing is going to survive. It's got a swing attached to it. So um, my ladder is kind of short, and my trellis is kind of tall. So if I, if I rock on the ladder just enough, I can get enough momentum to uh, get on the trellis. And then hand myself my um, electric uh, (laughs) hedge trimmers and I can get into it and trim it all up. And so the last time I did this, which was like three weeks ago, I would love to say I have learned the lesson. I I, I kick off the the ladder to, to straddle this trellis and the ladder goes... So, I mean, I could probably, you know, trapeze off of it and, and be okay. But, and I had already gotten the power cord and the bush, but now I'm stuck on the trellis to, like, do all my trimming. So I am holding on to, holding on to the top part of the post, and uh, it's a big hedge trimmer. It really needs two hands. But I figure I can do this and just kind of lop off this whole side while I'm leaning out and then switch hands and and do this. The only problem is when I leaned out, I didn't recognize that the power cord (laughs) was wrapped up in the shrub that I was trying to trim. So when I did it, I immediately lost power. So now I have no ladder, I have no hedge trimmer, and I'm too proud to call my family for help to set the ladder back up because then I would have to tell them that we need to go buy a new electrical cord. Um, as well as do whatever we need to to bandage my wounded ego. And so uh, <clears throat> here's, here's the point. I'd have been okay if I still had power. You know, I probably had another 20 minutes worth of work that I could have done. But the, the minute I cut through that power cord, I'm just hanging out now. You know, I'm just wasting time. And I don't know if you've ever had a situation. You know, I've had this with my with my dad, you know, um, Anytime I go home, I have to program all of his electronics, which you know is a joke because I'm I'm not the most you know uh, technology inclined. But his VHS, he's upgraded a little bit beyond the VHS, but it, it blinks zero, 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 0. and I'm like, Dad, you just got to figure this out. And nine times out of ten, my mom has unplugged it, which is the reason it's not working the way that it's supposed to. It's just been disc. Connected from the power source, so i don 't know if you 've ever had a situation where you expect something to work, and like you call in someone to you call in an electrician to come figure it out, you pay one hundred and fifty bucks for him to be there, and then it's something as stupid as you just didn't hit the ground on the plug to you know trip it to get it running again it 's frustrating <clears throat> here 's the, here's the point. There are ways when we talk about um, the power in the encouragement in the joy. And the motivation and the vitality that we get from the Holy Spirit, there are ways in which we cut ourselves off from that sense of power and fellowship. And um, I I get a lot of questions about, about, uh, even this morning after the first service, there were a line of people talking about what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because it's unforgivable, this is kind of a big deal, what is it? Um, So we want to talk about this this morning, and so I want to give just a little bit of a preface we are going to talk very um, blatantly about our sin in ways that we sin against the Holy Spirit. Now, <clears throat> for those of you that, you know, you're amped up on your Star- Starbucks cappuccino and you want, you know, happy, happy, this is going to be a little serious. And the reason, that, the reason I think this is important is this is not typical. We, do, we talk about our sin regularly in the pulpit here. Um, I think the challenge, though... <clears throat> especially if you've grown up in church. Um, I asked this in the first service. How many of you have been in church long enough that you know what it means to be a good boy or a good girl? Okay? Now, how many of you also know what it means to be a good boy and a good girl and also know that there's still a daily battle with sin in your life? The temptation is, the longer that you've walked with Jesus, I think to make Jesus a little smaller and to make your sin a little smaller. You just minimize it. Nah, nah, shoulder shrug, big deal. Well, listen, if, if your sin was enough to cause Jesus to die on the cross, it's not a small issue. It's not a small issue. So don't treat it like a little Pokemon pet. It's not something to play with. It's not, it, it's, it's serious. So uh, I'm not trying to be a killjoy I'm just trying to say there are some very serious ways in which you hear all of these awesome things about what the Holy Spirit can and will do in your life, but then there are ways you have pulled the plug. So we want to talk about this this morning. So we're going to talk about four ways that we sin against the Holy Spirit, and we're going to start with uh, the big one. We'll start number one in your sermon outline uh, with being aware of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll, um, you'll find this... In multiple passages, it's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke, it's in all the synoptic gospels. But I think the most clear place that we can go to to look at this is Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. You'll see it on the screen here. We need to be aware of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I say be aware because um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I believe, is not something that a Christian can commit. So uh, here's, here's the deal, if you have um, committed some kind of egregious sin, and the Spirit has assaulted your conscience, and you're wringing your hand over whether you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the fact that you care proves that you haven't. Isn't that good to know? Now, that doesn't mean your sin may, may not be serious, because we're going to find out there are still some really terrible consequences for sin, but you've not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 and 32 says this, Uh, because of this, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and every blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now listen to this, verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's talk about the Trinity here for just a second. Father, Son, Spirit. Which one's God? All of them, equally. The the, the Spirit is no less God than the Son. The Son is no less God than the Father. In their being, they are completely equal. Yet, within their function, within the Trinity, the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son. The Spirit doesn't have its own mission. The Spirit's mission is to glorify the Son. The Son's mission is to glorify the Father. So, as we think through this function, God the Father... God the Son, God the Spirit, doesn't it seem really weird that we're not going to be, that we will be forgiven sins against the Son, but we're not going to be forgiven sins against the Spirit? Do you see that there in the passage? How do you, how do you deal with that? Now, I'm, I'm going to stand away from my Bible here because I'm, I'm going to give you my interpretation. There's a variety of ways that people deal with this, and I think that this is the most faithful way, but it's my, it's my opinion. <clears throat> When they talk about, when when Jesus talks about this, he specifically uses the title son of man, not son of God. Because in his incarnation, you know what? He kind of looks like us, he talks like us, he smells like us, he eats like us, he sleeps like us, he sneezes like us. He's God in the flesh, he's God kind of in disguise. And I think he's saying, you know what? Peter, you think you know God's plan's better than mine? Get thee behind me, Satan. But that's forgivable. Because we don't really understand what exactly God is doing in the incarnation. So sins against the Son of Man will be forgiven because there is the opportunity for you to grow in your understanding of what is, who is the Son of Man. He's actually the Son of God. How do we know that the Son of Man is the Son of God? Whenever the Spirit shows up, when He walks on the water. When he takes food for a family and he feeds 5,000, when he raises people from the dead, when he causes people to speak in languages that they've not studied to proclaim the gospel, when people are healed. So, when the Spirit shows up, the Spirit is God's confirming evidence that Jesus, the Son of Man, is actually indeed the Son of God. You may misunderstand the Son of Man. You cannot understand the Spirit of God. How else is there power for him to do what he does? Who else has words of eternal life? Now, there's a variety of interpretations. There are some people who believe that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit could really only happen while Jesus was alive. Now, he's still alive on earth. Maybe that's a better way to say it. So now that Jesus has ascended, some people would say, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not possible. I don't think that's true. There are some people who say blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is just continued unbelief. So everyone in the world that doesn't finally repent and put their faith in Jesus has committed the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's right, because he's addressing a specific uh, situation, not a generic thing that everybody fits into. He's saying, beware of this specific sin, not, hey, y'all end up in it anyway. So I think he's addressing something specific. Some teach that it's apostasy, that someone who was genuine a, a believer, and they've denied the faith and not a believer. That's, that's not it. Jesus, in this context, is addressing the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, they were... Um, very religious, very scriptural, but in our good Baptist terminology, they weren't saved. Why? Because they didn't know Jesus. Now, the truth is, they knew exactly who Jesus was. And they saw what he performed. They saw what he did. They just desired to misrepresent the source of his power. So Jesus, right before the passage that we look at, Luke chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus casts demons out of a man. You know what the Pharisees say? You know how Jesus gets the power to cast out demons? Because he's got a demon himself. He's got a really big, powerful demon. And it's so powerful, he can cast out all the other demons. Where did Jesus get his power to do what he did? Jesus actually says a a great thing. He says, a house divided against itself will fail. You know, demons casting out demons, they're on the same team. They wouldn't do that. And so there are three conditions that have to exist to make this sin um, committable. And uh, as we said, it's not committable by a Christian. This is not like the most extreme form of backsliding. That's not it. This is something that's committed by um, committed unbelievers. Three conditions. Number one, there has to be clear knowledge. There has to be clear knowledge. The Pharisees knew who Jesus was. They, They were just unwilling to admit or to submit to him. So number one, clear knowledge. Number two, willful rejection. So this, just, this wasn't just a meh. This was willful. They knew what they were doing. Number three, malicious slander. They, they took Jesus demonstrating the power of God and actually turned it around to make it sound like it was Satan who was actually doing what he was doing. And so I, you know, I had somebody after the first service who has a um, son who's a, a famous atheist. And he is um, teaching through his website how to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so she came to me and she said, What if there are people that stumble onto his website and they say, you know, whatever, that Jesus' power came from Satan? Is there clear knowledge of the gospel? The issue is, if somebody tricks you into saying something and you're doing it because they tell you to, not because you have clear knowledge that you're willfully rejecting and you're maliciously trying to slander, this is not an issue of, oops, I said something bad with my lips one time. Uh, What happens here in context is the Pharisees are not ignorant, and this is not an isolated incident. This is not just, ooh, I said those bad words. Their words come from where? The Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the blasphemy of the Spirit is not just an insane moment where you utter some words. It is an expression of a heart that is malevolent towards God, opposed to Him. And so, you know, you were... You, you have an incident in college where you went to a party and some stuff happened and you said something that really is antithetical to the rest of your testimony. That's not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is something that is much more settled than that. So why is it unforgivable? <clears throat> why is it unforgivable? Again, we have to go back to our doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, is the one who died to purchase your pardon. But the Holy Spirit is the one that applies that specifically and expressly to your heart. So what Jesus did, he he did in general, but the Spirit applies in specificity. So our pardon really comes through the ministry of the Spirit applying um, the nature of the atonement to us as individuals. So when we malign, when we blaspheme the Spirit, we're maligning the only one through, whom, through, whom, through whom's agency we are saved. And so you sit there and you go, wow, okay, so here is the, the peace offering, so to speak, and we don't want to have anything to do with it. That sounds bad. Th- there's no forgiveness whatsoever. So how does a person kind of respond to that? Well, this is really kind of a condition where an unbeliever has done what Pharaoh has done. He's hardened his heart. So they don't really care whether they're going to be forgiven or not. They are past caring. They're completely insensitive to promptings of the Holy Spirit. And they have zero desire for repentance. So what are you going to do with somebody like that? Are you going to persuade them to believe? No, persuasion is completely ineffective. Are you going to pray for God to demonstrate through the power of the Spirit the reality of who He is? No, persuasion is inadequate. Demonstration is not convincing. They have hardened their heart, and the Bible says there is no forgiveness once someone has committed this sin. Now, the good thing to know is for us who are believers, this is not something that is a possibility for a believer. That doesn't, however, get you off the hook because there's other ways that we commit uh, sin and disconnect ourselves from the power supply of the Holy Spirit that are important. Our our second point is uh, staying away from the sin unto death. Stay away, stay far away from the sin unto death. And for this, we turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. I think you're only going to have the first verse uh, on the screen behind you. 1 John 5, 16 and 17 says this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't bring death. There is a sin that brings death, and I am not saying that you should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that does not bring death. Now, admittedly here, we're jumping into the deep end of the pool with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the sin unto death. What in the world is this? Well, look at verse 16. If anyone sees his, who? Brother. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we said is not possible by a Christian. Guess what the sin unto death is? So this is a warning for you, that the sin unto death means this, that ultimately your soul may be saved, but your body may have to die. You have mocked the Lord enough that you have forfeited your right to physical life. He says, listen, if you're gonna live like that, you might ultimately be saved, but in time, you're coming home. I'm not gonna give you the opportunity to mock my name any further. It's time for you. You might call this the most severe kind of backsliding possible. Someone who, genuinely in their heart, has not denied Christ, not, not who he is. They, they believe that he's God, but they mock him with their lifestyle. They've denied him with their life. And so, this is sin that is willful, presumptuous, and deliberate. You don't trip into the sin unto death. This becomes part of your testimony that, yeah, you're saved. You just didn't love Jesus a whole lot. And the, Perhaps the most clear way for me to say this, <clears throat> and I hope that this makes sense to you because it's really just playing off of two words. There is uh, an incredible difference between falling into sin and living in sin. There's a, a world of difference between falling into sin and living in sin. That, that becomes the basis for this judgment that God executes. Um, We know in our own legal system that there's a difference between a crime of passion and a premeditated crime, okay? Does that make sense? I asked the question earlier, how many of you have been in church long enough to know how to be a good boy and good girl, okay? How many of you would be willing to admit that while you know how to be a good boy and good girl, your reactions in some situations are less than you think would honor Jesus, Is there anybody whose hand doesn't need to go up? Listen, there there are just ways that our sin nags at us and nips at our heels and we never fully get away from it. And and, and our sin pursues us. And so there is a difference between having a momentary outburst of rage and then like planning in your anger to let it smolder to get someone back. There's a difference between a crime of passion and, and, and deliberately... Focus on living in sin and that's where he's saying it's the person who's living in sin that could ostensibly commit the sin unto death so what is the sin unto death talking back to your parents no it is any sin of which you're unwilling to repent telling lies cheating on your taxes um cheating on your spouse i mean it's anything that you're unwilling to repent of. And here's the issue, is like you you hear about this sin unto death. Some of you have read the 1 John 5 passage and you've never caught that. What is this sin unto death? Because like John is giving instructions. If it's not a sin unto death and you see your brother doing it, pray for him. If it's a sin unto death, do not pray for him. What do you not pray for? That's pretty crazy. And yet when you look throughout the Bible, there is this um, promise of, um, maybe I could say it this way, eschatological salvation but temporal judgment. It happens all throughout the Bible. Blew my mind when I started to think about this. 1 Corinthians 3, what is that, verse 16 and 17. says this, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary and the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone destroys God's sanctuary, God will destroy him. For God's sanctuary is holy and that is what you are. That kind of sounds like a threat of judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 5. I have to be careful about this. Anybody grow up in Corinth Baptist Church? I had someone in the first service. I got in big trouble. If you're going to name a church after a city in the Bible, do not name it after Corinth. Corinth was the most wicked city. Like, if our name was Corinth Baptist Church, we would have an immediate business meeting to change it to whatever. Lukewarm Baptist Church would be better than Corinth Baptist Church. They were messed up. So I want you to hear... 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is away from this church that he'd helped to establish and he cannot believe what he is hearing. So you know when there's sin in the church, there is a process that we're supposed to follow with going to one another and pleading for people to forget to, to, to leave their sin. Not in 1 Corinthians 5. The sin is so gross and so vile. Paul says, there is no step one, step two, step three, step four. Boom, you do this. I, it is widely reported That there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among pagans. A man is living with his father's wife. It's not his mom. So his mom is, they're either divorced or she's dead. It's his stepmom. And then listen to this. And you are inflated with pride. Look how tolerant we are. Aren't we gracious? I mean, we just love people. It's loving to not confront people about their sin. He says, you're inflated with with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. For though I am present in body, uh, absent in body, but present in the spirit, I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were physically present there. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus With my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, you see this um, distinction that's made. Destruction of the flesh kind of makes it hard to live. But an ultimate salvation that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. There are sins that you can commit Long enough, with enough passion, that your testimony becomes a mockery. But the Bible says you need to be turned over for the destruction of your flesh, that you're not allowed to mock your Lord who has bought you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's interesting, all of these passages happen at the church at Corinth. So uh, I want you to hear this, because uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 11. This is a passage we read when we take the Lord's Supper. He says this, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. And in this way, he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Listen up. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. He's not just talking about a bunch of deacons on the back row. He's talking about people who have died. And I want you to notice that this is not an isolated incident. How does he describe this? He says there's a lot of people that are sick, and there's a lot of people that are dead because they have mockingly taken the Lord's Supper. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. Acts chapter 5 You have the story of Ananias and Sapphira who intentionally lied and misrepresented the truth to the entire congregation. And it says that immediately the Holy Spirit caused them to fall over dead and people had to go out and bury him. Here's the point, And I hope that this puts some sobriety into you. As a Christian, you have been bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. And if you act like you don't belong to Jesus you may prematurely cut your life off. There is a disrespect of Jesus' lordship that is tremendously serious. So when you treat your sin like an insignificant thing, you are blaspheming what Jesus has to say about sin. It cost him his life, and you're going to coddle it? Be very careful. The truth is you may not know anybody, or you may not have, I should say it in the past sense, you may not have known anyone who has committed the sin unto death. I have a Sunday school teacher that I believe did. Um, was a Sunday school teacher for years. And un- unbeknownst to everyone, uh, he was having an affair for years. Uh, 45 years old, triathlete, macho, muscles, no body fat, six pack of abs, <laughs> fell over dead of a heart attack, cutting in his grass. And nobody knew about his affair until after he died. And this was a guy that I loved, and he lived a lie. And I think ultimately he was saved, but I think God required his life. He wasn't going to allow him to be in a position of leadership and and, and do that. <clears throat> so you may not know, not have known someone who's committed this unto death, but there are two sins that I see Christians commit all the time against the Spirit. So what we see in point three, we're we're we're, we're encouraged to guard against grieving the Spirit. That only occurs in one passage in the entire New Testament, Ephesians 4.30. It says, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit who sealed you for the day of redemption. This is a sin that happens any time a believer deliberately chooses that which is other than will build your relationship with the Spirit. You see, the word grieving is a personal word. Um, People like to make fun of how I drive, Reed Hopkins, and... um, Marcy Davis and the rest of my family and Ed LaRock, my car's like almost as old as Chloe. It's 14 years old. And, you know, I don't really care Um, uh, because I get in and I crank it up and I'm zoom, I'm going. And, you know, my car's, you know, it's kind of like an old dog. You know, you don't expect an old dog to fetch anymore. You know, you kind of got to get working up to that, get them moving. And so I probably need to like, crank my car on and let it warm up a little bit before we take the mad dash to wherever we're going. I don't really care. But you know what? My my car is not going to grieve my driving pattern, right? Because cars don't grieve. Cars are things. People grieve. And the Bible says that you can make decisions where the Holy Spirit can say, I think it's really good for you to take this path. This is the path for you to take. This is God's will for you, your sanctification." And you go, hey, yeah, thanks for the suggestion, but uh, I think I'm going to take this path because this is what I really want. Well, now, in addition to breaking God's law, which is objective and not personal, you have grieved the Spirit. You You have chosen to do something that is not encouraging your relationship. That's what the Bible talks about. When you are intentionally choosing something that you know is not right, that's why grieving the Spirit is the sin of rebellion. I think that's a good way to say it. You are choosing to do something that is not helping your relationship to a person. It's a spirit. And this rebellion happens in two ways. Number one, we ignore God's indwelling presence. God's spirit is convicting you. And you go, ah, I'll listen to them later. I'm gonna do this. So I, I don't know what your sleeping patterns are like. I like it dark and I like it cold. And if either of those two factors seem to be missing, um, my sleep is not going to be as sweet as it could be. So anybody else? Dark and cold people? i got to have a fan on, you know. Sometimes a little sound machine in the background is kind of nice. So um, nap times are, you know, fleeting. You don't get many of those. But like if I'm going to take a nap in the middle of the day and it's bright and sunshiny, I have to pull the blinds. The condition that I've created in that room uh, lies about the condition that is outside. The sun is fully shining and I could experience its warmth and its glory just by opening my blinds. But there are ways that we ignore God's indwelling spirit that it's kind of like we pull the blinds on our heart to not listen to what he has to say. And we think everything's dark and gloomy and cold when the reality is very different. So I see people that make sinful decisions and then they get mad at God. And They say, well, God, God left me here. No, I'm pretty sure if you open the blinds, he was right where you left him. You're just the one that has changed the situation. We grieve the Spirit. So we begin by ignoring his indwelling presence. Then, secondly, we actually infringe upon his stated commands. Now, I like the word infringe because I'm going to give you kind of an analogy. You see a no trespassing sign, okay? That means this is the boundary If you cross this boundary, you have infringed upon someone else's property. And and because we have ignored the promptings of God's indwelling spirit and we're about to infringe, we see the sign, we just think it applies to everybody but me. Oh, that's good advice for them. But as for me, I'm going to do it. And so we rebel by ignoring and infringing. Now, there's all kinds of things in the passage. If you go to Ephesians chapter 4, and you look from uh, chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 5, verse 5, in that context, you'll see all kinds of examples of what it means to grieve the Spirit. Uh, Acting like unbelievers, promiscuity and impurity, lying, anger, uh, not working and stealing, foul language, bitterness, not forgiving, sexual immorality, foolish talk. Anybody guilty of any of those? You do these things, you will grieve God's spirit. The challenge for Christians is you can never get away with it. You never commit a sin without there being some kind of discipline. The Bible says like a father, God disciplines those whom he loves. But your sin will be a barrier to your relationship with God. I remember, when, I think I was, um, I think when I turned 16, my parents did something really stupid. They said, um, you're going off to, besides conceiving me, you know, <laughs> They didn't know what they were getting into. Uh, I turned 16. They said, you're going away to school. And I was not looking at any schools within a 1,000 miles of my parents. So they knew I was going away and kind of a pioneer. I wasn't looking back. So they said, in two years, you're going to um, be making all kinds of decisions for yourself. And we don't think you should get that freedom in a vacuum for the first time. So they said, you're 16. We make no more rules for you. You make your own rules. Now you screw up. We're gonna have a conversation, and we may need to dial it back a little bit. Um, what was terrible was all my friends had rules still, so I didn't have a curfew, but they had to be in at eleven. What am I gonna do by myself at eleven fifteen? So, um, it, it, my dad made the point that he will always be my dad. He just might not really—he might not be real proud to be associated with me based on what I do. The relationship, in its nature, would never change. I can't him from being my dad but our enjoyment of that relationship could change drastically and i decided i didn't want to mess with my relationship with my dad i wanted to make decisions that were going to encourage my relationship with my father and in the same way that's what happens here sin will always be a barrier to your relationship with god it will destroy your fruitfulness it will destroy your witness it will desiccate it will shrivel up in 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 Sh- uh, just shrink your Christian life. The Bible will become boring. Joy will flee from you like it never ever existed. God's presence will fade. You may lose assurance of your salvation. That's what happens when you sin. And so Jesus says in John fifteen four, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And we think it's a small thing to cut ourselves off from the power source. This is what we mean when we talk about backsliding. But he gives a fourth thing. He tells us to quit quenching the Spirit. Again, this is only found in one scripture, 1 Thessalonians five nineteen, which says rather briefly, do not quench the Spirit. This is just ignoring the Spirit's promptings. And the best way I think I can draw a distinction between what grieving is and what quenching is, is grieving is, I think, rebellion. Quenching, I think, is reaction. You ever seen somebody who's, Something really great has happened to them this week and they they come up and like, let me tell you about this week. we did this and I got a promotion and I, got, and I inherited a million dollars and I got a brand new car and I got this and I got a bigger house and a swimming pool and um you know I'm gonna be president and you know all that's good stuff and you're standing there and you're like meh That's stupid. What have you just done? Anybody know anybody like that? Don't mention a name. Um you have just, maybe not quenched the Holy Spirit, but you have you have dumped a big old bucket of cold water on their parade. You've done it. And I think sometimes, like, maybe you're just distracted. You ever listen to someone with no intention of actually listening to them? You're laughing because you do it. Um, I got you figured out. You know, you're, you're distracted. Maybe you have something else going on. And you are not intentionally trying to ruin someone day, someone's day. But do you realize that every single one of you have probably ruined someone's day? You've quenched the spirit in a human sense. Um, the way that you react can sometimes do much more damage than you would ever assume. And so here's kind of what happens. When we talk about quenching, you can talk about quenching in two ways. You can quench a thirst... There's like a fire in your throat. You quench it. Um, But you also quench a a fire. And uh, the best illustration of this is from the Bible. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. He's talking about putting on the armor of God. And he says, take up the shield of faith by which you will be able to extinguish the devil's fiery darts. The dart hits hits your body. That's not good. The fiery dart hits the shield. It extinguishes the flame. And so when we talk about extinguishing the, or quenching the spirit, the spirit will begin to burn in you. You know, you have an insight from the scriptures that just is rocking your world. And you want to go share it with someone and it begins to burn around someone else. And while normally firefighters are a really good thing, when we talk about quenching the spirit, they're not. Because there are some people that take pride on dousing other people's enthusiasm. And yet when the spirit begins to burn, you don't want to douse it, you want to arouse it. You don't want to put it out. You want to fan it up. And so there are two ways that you as a believer can quench the spirit. Two ways. The first is kind of the, what we call the cold water committee. You know, no matter what you're excited about, there's somebody with like a garbage can full of cold water ready to pour it on your idea. Whatever it is, you're, you know, and they'll recruit help. If the garbage can is too heavy for them to lift, they will get helpers to pour water on your enthusiasm. Most of you, because you raised your hand earlier that you've been in church long enough to know how to be a good boy and good girl, will never do that. That is too overt. You would never intentionally douse someone's Holy Spirit enthusiasm. But There's another way to extinguish a flame, and it's not by dousing, it's by starving. Oh yeah, I see your little flame there, that's cute. we're we're gonna make sure you have no other fuel to add to the fire. We're gonna move the wood pile way over here and let you have your little Holy Spirit enthusiastic party here and let those two or three logs burn down and then eventually from lack of fuel, what happens to that fire? it sizzles out. And it comes from lack of feeding, lack of encouraging, and so while y'all are much better Christians to, than, than to ever sin unto death, oh, and I wouldn't even, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to grieve the Spirit. The truth is we grieve the Spirit and we quench the Spirit every day and we're so spiritually out of tune that we don't even necessarily realize it. So what suggestions are there for saints? Are there any solutions? Because part of the gospel is, the gospel is not just really a message. It is a message with like nuclear power in it to change your life and to rearrange things. And so this is not what God wants. He wants you to have abundance of joy. He wants you to have a fullness of life. He's got an easy yoke. He's going to do things through you and he doesn't want you to have this humdrum, lack of vitality relationship that doesn't look any different than people who aren't saved. So what do you do? You don't want to commit to sin and to death but trust me, you don't want to grieve the Spirit or quench Him either, right? So how do you avoid that? Because you might have quenched the Spirit in somebody's life already this morning. You might have grieved the Spirit last night. What do you do? Three things, three simple suggestions that I think are um, good solutions for saints. Number one, pray daily. Pray daily. And I go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. 12 and 13, really. Jesus is giving the model prayer. And he begins this part of the prayer, and then he says, Give us this day our, what's it say? What kind of bread? Daily, bread? Daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into Would you be okay with being led into into temptation every other day or every third day? No. I think just as the prayer for bread is daily bread, bread, not weekly bread, not monthly bread, it's daily bread. So we are to pray daily for forgiveness and daily to forgive others and daily to not be in temptation. I mean, when do you you want to be in temptation? When do you want to be unforgiving? When do you not want to be forgiven? I, I guarantee you as much as you eat three times, four times a day. You need to be praying about your sin, about your forgiveness, about forgiving others, and about not being led into temptation. So if you don't want to quench, grieve, sin against the Spirit, pray daily regarding your sin. Number two, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. I'm not going to flip there. Uh, I, I just make the statement, fight for godliness. Peter is issuing this warning and says, guys, if you don't know this, be aware that there are desires out there that war against you. That's in the Bible. I mean, that's, amen. Have you noticed this week that there are things at war against you? Let me me give you a clue. You are not a civilian. You're a soldier. If you have been been married to Christ through faith and repentance, you're not an innocent bystander. You are supposed to fight back. And while normally, you know, we don't want our kids to be fighters, man, the fight for godliness is something you've got to be involved in. And if you're not fighting against it, you will grieve, quench, and perhaps even sin unto death and not even realize it. You have to fight for godliness. Number three, confess and correct. Confess and correct. 1 John 1, 9 says, God is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us. And I say confess and Correct. Because if you ask for forgiveness today with the full intention of committing the same sin tomorrow, you've not really truly repented. Confess and correct. And I think that this is so important for us. Because we have, um, I heard a great illustration this week. Uh, Guys that are in the um, theology breakfast on Thursday morning, this will be a little bit of a repeat for you. Is that sometimes we treat God's grace like the... um, fuel tank on the space shuttle Everybody seen the space shuttle seen videos of the space shuttle you know it's got it's got this big tank and then it's got these two little rockets on the side and then you got the space shuttle on top of it and you need all those fuel tanks to get out of the gravity of earth but then the tanks do what they fall away and then the space shuttle continues under its own power I think that sometimes we treat the gospel the same way. That we need the gospel to get saved, but once we get saved, it falls away and and we continue on in the Christian life in our own power. It's not true. You need the gospel to get saved. You need the gospel to be saved, to continue being saved. And so a gospel person who loves the gospel and wants to build their life around the gospel doesn't want to quench the Spirit. Heck no. Doesn't want to even go any further than that and grieve the Spirit. Certainly doesn't want to commit the sin unto death. So how we live fleshes out what we believe. And if we don't care about sin, we don't pay attention to that, then to that degree, we believe the gospel less. And we mock the sacrifice of Christ. And you don't want to do that. So don't minimize your sin. Instead, maximize your Savior. Because as big as your sin is, guess what? The Bible says His victory over sin is even greater than the immensity of our sin. That is good news, my friend. Would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Father, I pray that you convict our hearts. There there are no words that I can say to convict us. Your spirit is the only thing that can do it. I have no business trying to guilt people into making some kind of emotional commitment. Father, we believe that your word works on our heart and works on our mind and works on our will. And today, help us because of the knowledge that you have given us from your word, to be in the battle. To recognize that there is a war that is going on. And it's a war for our holiness, or for our sin. Help us to love you enough and to prize the gospel. That we seek to have a gospel that not only saved us 30 years ago, but helps us to choose wisely so that we don't grieve the Spirit, that our relationship with the Spirit becomes sweeter and deeper and stronger and not some kind of alienated relationship like guys that you graduated from high school with that you haven't seen in 30 years. Help it to be intimate. Help it to be powerful. Because I think sometimes we do go about our lives trying to live it without the gospel of your grace, and it's just a drudgery. So Father, we pray that you restore to us the joy of our salvation, that you motivate us not by our own human effort, but that we sense a motivation by the Spirit of God to live and to speak and to do exactly what you would have us do because you have told us that all things uh, are possible through your strength. So, Father, we pray that our efforts to live for you will not be in our strength alone, but in the strength that only you can give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.